interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings. Welcome back to another episode of the Raw Selection Private Equity Podcast, interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking their secrets to success. Joining us today is Ewan McKinnon, partner at Maven Capital Partners. Welcome and thank you for sharing your insights into the industry today. Thanks, Alex. So as our normal protocol, Ewan, if you can kind of share a 60 to 90 second breakdown of you, please. Sure. Um, so in terms of my background, and I'm going to go back to my childhood, actually, to start with. My father was a bit of an entrepreneur um, and actually he was a workaholic. And, and because of that, um, when I was a young kid, the way I used to spend time with my dad was actually working with him. So from an early age, I worked with my, my father. He had a chain of, of retail stores. And from about 14 years old, I was, I was working uh, as, as, as many hours as I could, mainly to, to start with, to, to be close to my dad, you know, somebody who I respected and admired. But, you know, as I got old, slightly older, really enjoyed, you know, really enjoyed working with them. And I think, you know, late, later on in school, I knew from an early age that I wanted to work in industry. And therefore, I decided to study business at university and spent four years in Aberdeen studying business and then latterly studied accountancy. And um, once I graduated from, from university, I, I worked in my father's retail chain for a number of years. And that was a great learning experience. Um, I mean, we, we grew very, very quickly at the time. We acquired two or three businesses along the way. So there's a bit of M&A involved as well. And then in the sort of mid-2000s, the market changed um, very rapidly. We had to downsize quickly. Um, so unfortunately, I went through a period of, of scaling and then unfortunately having to retreat slightly. And then ultimately, I, I managed the sale to what was a FTSE 250 uh, business at the time. So, you know, first eight years of, of my career was busy in terms of M&A, dealing with cultural challenges of putting various businesses together, working capital challenges when you're coming to grow a business, in particular a retail business, which is a lot of stock managing people and the, and the issues that, you know, invariable, invariably go with that. And then the internet came around in the sort of mid to late 90s, entirely changed the market. It was a technological, technological shift in the market that we were involved in. And I, I led the sale of the business successfully. So after this, I ended up working in, in corporate finance. I actually went to work for the corporate finance advisor that, that we used. I knew the partner very well there. He asked me to come and join his team. So it was total, totally changed, total change for me. But what I quite liked about corporate finance was M&A, using accounting knowledge, a bit of business knowledge, and also there was a bit of sales in it as well. And from my retail background, I, I always loved the sale, the sales element. Um, so I, I joined there in 2006, uh, stayed for about three years, and that's when the, the call of private equity came. I, I'd worked with what was the Maven team at Aberdeen Asset Management, Worked with them on a couple of transactions, knew the, knew the lead partner there very well. He, he told me he was a way to set up what's now Maven. And they did a buyout themselves in the late, late 2000s and asked me if I want to come and join. And I felt that it was ideal for my skill set, having, having been involved in a business, helping run a business, being at the cold face and also working in, in private practice. I thought it was an ideal, an ideal opportunity to go back, working closer with management teams. And that's when I joined Maven. 
Makes sense. Appreciate the uh, the background there, Ewan. So what is one mistake that you see private equity firms or their portfolio companies making and what actions would you suggest to correct them? Yeah, and, you know, there's, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. And I think at the moment, and and, you, and I know you, you'll have heard this time and time again from people, you know, talking to you, there's, there's so much dry powder out there um, waiting to be invested uh, and with that comes higher valuations. And that means that value creation is even more and more important to, to help deliver desired returns. And I think the days of, of financial gearing, waiting for PE arbitrage have gone. And therefore for PE firms, and actually for portfolio companies as well, especially those undertaking a buy and build strategy, value creation is now fundamental in terms of getting the, the, the results and getting the returns that our investors our investors seek. And I think in terms of mistake that sometimes I see our portfolio companies doing, and, and you can use that in terms of PE firms as well, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. A lot of people think about the 100-day plan, and that's essentially what we you know, we used to do in the, in, in, in the good old days. And of course, the first 100 days are still very, very important, but it needs to start a lot earlier than that uh, as part of the diligence process, and it needs to go on way beyond the first 100 days as well. And taking too narrow a view in terms of value creation is also limiting. And um, you need to look at the, the potential value of every lever that you have. You know, the traditional levers such as buy and build, people and talent are very, very critical, still, still very important. But there's new levers you need to think about in terms of technology, digital transformation, data analytics, ESG, et cetera. Um, and these are rapidly gaining ground and people need to be cognizant of that. You know, the, the one thing in terms of value creation that you've got to remember as a PE firm is that Management teams have been running a process for six, nine months, perhaps. And, you know, long hours, they've probably cancelled holidays, they're tired, they'll be exhausted. It is a stressful process. And post-deal, they have a day job to do, and they've got to run the business. So they need help and support. So in terms of the value creation uh, process, it's not about ticking items off a checklist. Somebody told me once, and it's a great analogy, this, that it's like asking somebody to asking an athlete to run a marathon to Everest. And once he gets to the base camp, I'm asking him to climb Everest straight away. You know, the team need to be equipped for the journey. They need to have a detailed map and they need the right resources. And we need to be there to help and support them. So, you know, that's probably the one thing that, you know, I've seen in the past where teams have made, made mistakes. And that can be, as, as I say, management teams as well as PE teams. And I, and I suppose on that point, don't be afraid to change or augment the management team early on. You know, you, you know, you've got you're going into supercharged growth when you take on a PE firm, and and therefore PE firms need to have the right team. And sometimes, you know, the, the team that did very well before won't be equipped to take it to the next level. Well, I obviously agree with that. Certainly that later statement, but I'm sure people would tell me that I should agree with it. But I think that's an interesting, you know, value creation is, is heavily talked about in private equity, maybe not to the depth and uh, that you've just gone through there. Just out of curiosity there, so you, and you, what kind of model do you deploy to drive that value creation into the different portfolio companies? You know, we've seen a big drive in, in the US probably over the last five years to adopt like the operating partner position or portfolio director as it's sometimes referred to in Europe. Do you guys use yeah. that? Do you guys use your, obviously you've come from industry and then gone into corporate finance, then moved into private equity. So what kind of model do you use to, to bring that expertise to new portfolio companies and obviously existing? 
Yeah, I mean, we, we take a board seat on every transaction that we work on. So, and we typically have a portfolio director that sits on the board, and that's somebody with relevant experience. What we also do is make sure that we have an independent non-exec or and or potentially chairman that sits on the board as well with relevant industry experience. So we do take that portfolio management approach. I mean, I think for me, start early on and make sure your portfolio managers are involved in the deal so they don't get brought in once your, your transactors have done the deal and, and bring your sector specialists in early on as well, as, as early as possible. I think that I think that's key. So they've got the, you know, they understand the business right at the start when you're doing when you're doing diligence. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So we talked about obviously about your corporate finance progression in the uh, in the UK, quite common. Then moved obviously into private equity. But what inspired you to make that move? Because um, it's interesting. You've gone from industry and retail to then to corporate finance. Obviously, then built connections with what is now the uh, founders of Maven Maven yeah. Capital. What inspired you to move into private equity instead of I going back to industry or B going uh, staying in corporate finance? Yeah, I mean, I think private equity was the for me the best of both worlds. You know, working working in industry and then going into private practice. When I, when I worked in corporate finance, I did you know you do you do miss the buzz a little bit about being involved in the day to day operation of a business. And it's great when you're advising when you're advising a client, and, and let's say you're selling a business and you achieve a fantastic multiple for them, or or you sell them to PE, and then then the relationship ends. And 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 I really missed that when I was involved with management teams to sit for six to nine months, helping them, helping them refine their strategy, helping them come up with a business plan, helping them find a partner that would work with them well, and working so closely with them, and then that relationship ends. And, and you leave them to go on and, and, and hopefully succeed with a PE partner. And I, I missed that. And I felt, you know, it's something I want to do is to go back into industry. And I felt having the industry experience, accounting and corporate finance experience, private equity for me was a natural, a natural, um, a natural um, route to go, to go down. Transition makes sense. I know it's a common, certainly a common route here in uh, in the UK. Maybe not so common yeah. in the US. It's more investment banking, uh, more management consulting, but yeah, and probably that as well in uh, in Europe. But uh, uh, corporate finance does seem to be a popular route in uh, in the UK. So for those listening and uh, wondering where Ewan's based, he's based in Scotland, for those who are not too familiar with the accent. And as I know, we've got a very international uh, listener base. I'm sure everyone listening is fairly familiar with the private equity hub is, is London. We personally, and our search firm isn't based out of uh, out of London ourselves, we're based in Leeds. Um, but I know Maven's adopted a, a local office approach um, and also yourself staying strong and uh, with your Scottish roots and staying in uh, in Scotland. Do you yeah. feel do you feel that being outside of London kind of hinders your ability to be able to you know complete your business, or do you feel that it offers something different to everyone that's uh, you know in the capital? Yeah, I mean for, for us it's the latter, Alex. We, we do have an office in London. It's still still a very important office for us, but we have another ten offices dotted around the UK. The majority in England and, and two, as you mentioned, in Scotland. And we feel that having boots on the ground in regional cities allows us to be close to companies that we can potentially invest in. And I think that when you're when you're focused and concentrated in one city, you can miss opportunities that are occurring in, in the regions. You know, you know, London is, is a huge part of the British economy, but there are other key regions out there. And especially today where you know multiples are getting higher 
A lot of processes in London are run by, by investment banks and corporate finance houses, as you'd expect. I think you can find a little bit more value when you invest in the regions where they're maybe not advised. Um, you might get to know management teams by meeting them at events, reading about companies in, in local press, uh, and, and having boots on the ground. They're, they're living it, they're breathing, and um, they're sleeping in that area. They get to understand the business as well. So it's something as a, as a firm we're proud of, having offices in, e in each of the key corporate finance regions in the UK. And I think it does allow us to see deals that we otherwise wouldn't if we were solely based in London. Sorry to interrupt here. Just a quick note to highlight our new sponsor, Gratter. The private equity market is rapidly shifting to a data-driven, proprietary deal sourcing standard. Gratter provides the window into over 7 million middle market private companies. Contact Gratter so you can access the market first. Request a demo at www.gratter.com. Now back to the podcast. Makes sense. I agree. You know, I think uh, there's a lot of pressure and um, consideration put on being in London and being there. Um, but I think uh, you know, definitely a, lo a local approach in that conversation can be uh, can certainly be useful um, yeah. for uh, for businesses to to get more of that face to face, especially when you're buying businesses and building trust with them. And clearly, that's clearly that has worked for for you guys um, up to this point. So. One thing I've done with my research was understanding that, you know, um, Maven adopts what's regarded as the VCT model or UK venture capital trust model. Yeah. Um, what's kind of your opinion on that and, and how well has that worked for within, within Maven? Yeah. So we've got, we're slightly unusual as a firm because we've got um, a number of pools of capital that we can, we can call upon. So VCTs, probably the biggest pop capital that we have, we manage about 280 million pounds of, of VCT money but we also have more traditional private equity we were doing traditional buyouts buy-ins both on a deal by deal basis and we've also got an institutional fund as well so the v the vcts are very much and for those not from the uk the vcts are a, are a scheme that was introduced by the uk government quite over 25 years ago where uh, retail investors get a 30 percent tax break if they invest into into a vct into venture capital trust and as long as they hold their shares for five years, any income they receive and any capital gains are tax-free. So the UK government introduced this to, to really try and try and get um, investment into specific sectors within the UK economy. And, and nowadays that is aimed at the sort of seed and series A rounds. Um, the UK government undertook a, a study about eight years ago and they found that there was a gap in the market. So a lot of PE firms have moved you know, up in terms of value, they're middle, lower mid-market and above. There's plenty of family offices, there's plenty of high net worth individuals down at the bottom end of the market, but they felt that there was a gap that needed to be filled and that's where the VCTs come in. And it's, for me, it's been a fantastic success story. We are targeting businesses that you know, have, have revenues, they're, they're high growth mode, they're looking to scale, they're looking to internationalize. And, you know, if it, I think if it wasn't for the VCT market, a lot of these businesses would not receive the funding that they can to, to supercharge their growth. Banks are not interested. Most PE firms, it's too small for them down at that sort of one, two million revenue. And this allows companies to get a mixture of capital and expertise to help them accelerate their growth. Makes sense. Makes sense. So what do you love about the private equity industry and equally, you know, what do you dislike about it? So, I mean, working, working for a generalist fund, I mean, Maven is, is a generalist fund, you know, you get to learn from a wide range of industries. You get to see so many different sectors. 
you know, think about the things I've seen recently, fintech, marketing technology, consumer goods, general industrial. Um, but you can still specialize in, in specific niches as well. And I think if I go back to the, you know, my early days working with dad's business, I love, I love doing deals. I love transacting. I get a huge buzz from the transactional part, negotiating, you know, finding common ground. I also love the operational part as well. It's great working with some of the best entrepreneurs in the UK, learning from them. You know, you learn every day you're working in PE, but also being able to share, you know, the, the knowledge that I've managed to amass over the years and experience to help businesses grow. So for me, private equity drives growth. It allows companies to innovate, to flourish. And it's great to be part of an industry that's helped some of the most innovative and successful companies, you know, scale, grow, and grow employment. And going back to the, the regional model that we're proud of, help local economies too. Absolutely. And what, what do you dislike about it? Dislike about it? Um, I mean, the one thing I would say is, it, and it's not what I dislike about the industry. I, I dislike sometimes the press the industry gets, the bad, the bad press, which I think is, is, is not fair. You know, there, there has been some examples of, of funds in the past that have been, you know, that have been asset strippers and we get a, a, a reputation as, 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 as that we're all like that. You know, we go in, we leverage businesses, you know, we pay little, we put loads of bank debt and then we strip assets. That's not what private equity is about. But unfortunately, we can sometimes all be tarred by the same brush. So it'd be great as an industry if we could try and get the, the mainstream media away from from seeing that PE is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. So, the, you know, the one thing that, that sometimes frustrates me is how we can be portrayed as an industry. See, I would completely agree with that statement, you and I think the industry gets too much of a bad press. But you know, bad news sells better than uh, it does. It does. It sells news. newspapers exactly. I, I also yeah. think the industry, and you know, one of the reasons why we set this up is, and we've had a lot of people that have come and requested to be on the podcast and can't be on it because their yeah. private equity firm won't let them talk about it unless we structure the conversation and they tell me exactly what I can ask. And uh, we can't go off structure, which you know, I don't believe is is genuine to, to what we want to explore um, and do on the podcast here. So I've, uh, I've politely declined. But I think mm. there's a little bit of a, a hidden ooh, private equity secret. And I understand with fundraising and, and what has to happen here, but it doesn't mean we can't talk about value creation. It doesn't mean we can't talk about the strategies that businesses deploy because, you know, is it fundamentally companies that we, you know, say we, that you build and you sell and you grow those organizations, which grow supply chains, which grow local economies and, and boost loads and loads of different areas. But I think there is an element of, well, it's a bit top secret and we don't want everyone to know about it. I think that doesn't do us, you know, as an industry any justice because that secretive nature, you know, hopefully we're giving people an insight more into private equity. Although I, totally I, agree. I know from our listeners, most people are in private equity, but uh, yeah. hopefully you know about private equity if you work in it. But Absolutely. yeah, I think this is just a bit of a too much of a cloak and dagger approach to, to this industry and a bit too secretive, which happens up and down the scale of small private equity firms to, uh, to, the, to the giant ones. No, totally agree. Totally agree. And I think, I think, there, there has been more, there has been better news stories out there. But as you say, it's the people remember the bad stories and, you know, the, the, you know, and they sell, they sell newspapers. And unfortunately, that's sometimes why, why we're tarred with the same brush. 
Well, who wants to read about the good business that did really well in <laughs> Bristol that nobody's heard of? And uh, exactly, and exactly. Did X, y, and Z. But you want to hear about the private equity firm that that lost thousands got of people jobs and yeah. hundreds of people jobs and caused loads of problems. So indeed, I, uh, I understand that that's always going to be the case. But I think if we promoted the industry a little better um, and we're a bit more open, it might make uh, a bit of a difference. So. Absolutely. You and I'm a, I'm a big reader myself, but what kind of educational resources would you recommend others to to in the industry to to check out? Um, yeah, I mean it's interesting because when I got when I when I was asked to do this podcast, I obviously went onto your website, Alex, and I've been I've been listening to loads of, loads of the podcasts that you've you've made, and they're they're fantastic. They're so interesting, and, and actually that leads you on to least listen to other podcasts because I know some of your some of the some of the people we've asked to be on the show have done their own podcasts and blogs, and there's so much you can learn there. Really, really interesting, and something actually I hadn't really got into in the past podcast. I've I've looked on you know my iPhone, and there's so many that you almost didn't know where to start. So it's overwhelming, great yeah. Find a specific specific topics that I'm that I'm interested in, which is great. In terms of in terms of what else I read, I mean, I subscribe to. Uh, a publication called Press Reader, and it, it, it's it's a global. It's an, it's, it's, I'm not sure if you've got it's a global platform that corrals all the the, the main um, newspapers and magazines from all over the world. It's a fantastic resource, so you can you can read every single almost every single newspaper is on this on Press Reader. And you have access to it, every single one for your charge in most of the major magazines. So you know, I read in terms of what I read on a daily and a weekly basis. I I, I read religiously the the mainstream. Um, newspaper. So, in terms of in the UK, the likes of the Sunday Times, the Times. I look at the more left-wing um, publications such as the Guardian to understand their take on things as well. But again, going back to the regional approach, it's important to understand what's going within the regions of the UK. So, I'll, I'll read the, the the regional newspapers to understand what's happening there. You know, in Scotland, it's the Scotsman, the Herald, etc. That's really interesting for for a regional business such as ourselves because you're finding out about companies. Who, who are issuing press releases, they're talking about the growth that they're undertaking, maybe people they're employing before they come to market. And that can be a great way to be introduced to businesses, finding out about these small businesses that have scaled at one contracts and, and they're 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 they they you know they're 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 publishing that. So I I I, I read a lot of, of, of local um of local newspapers as well for that knowledge. In terms of in terms of other things, the Economist is, is fantastic. In the UK, we have a magazine called Money Week. I read every week, get that delivered. It's still the old-fashioned way. And then obviously business books, you know, we 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 read a lot of books. And uh, I, I suppose it, when I did when I did a lot more traveling pre-pandemic, anytime I went to Edinburgh Airport, I usually stopped off at the local bookstore and bought another another business book, and that includes you know fiction and non-fiction as well. Um, so yeah, I've just I've, I've recently looked at another Elon Musk bio. In the last twelve months, there's been a couple of books in the Woodford Fund saga. So I've read both of those books. Really interesting about what happened there, built on a lie when the fund stopped. There's obviously been the, the recent court case in Theranos. So you know if you haven't read Bad Blood, fantastic book. So yeah, a mixture of newspapers, magazines, and and fiction and non-fiction books as well. 
quite the uh, quite the list I see in the background there. There's uh, quite a stack on the <laughs> there's bookshelf. A few there. So I guess you were going to answer that with some uh, some depth. So very much appreciate that, you. Just only mentioned there with regards to your deal flow and, and looking through magazines. It's interesting. I've never had anybody mention that. Are you guys, you mentioned earlier about your deal flow, or you mentioned earlier about deal flow through yeah. the usual channels of corporate finance, investment banking. Are you guys predominantly through that those methodologies, or do you drive kind of proprietary? as it's uh, referred to nowadays, uh, deal flow for, for Maven? Yeah, both. I mean, you, probably probably most of the, the, the deal flow still comes in the traditional way through corporate finance, through investment banks. Um, but, you know, sometimes it is, it's proprietary. And that's, and as I say, you know, you learn about companies that are out there through the local media. And if, if it means you have to pick up the phone, send an email, try and find somebody they're linked to on LinkedIn and see who their, their bankers are, their accountants that can give you a warm intro, then sometimes you can you can find off-market opportunities that otherwise you wouldn't. Absolutely. Seems to be the way. So Ewan, if anybody wants to reach out to you, post this podcast, how best do they, uh, do they get in touch, please? Yeah, I mean, email is fine. My, my email address is um, ewan.mckinnon at mavencp.com. And you'll also find me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn all the time, so you can find me there. Um, they're probably the best two two options to get in touch. Absolutely, we'll put that in the uh, in the show notes. Well, thank you very much for joining us. You're in the first Scott on the uh, Private Equity thank Podcast. Um, thank unless you, we've Alex. got a hidden Scott with no accent, um, <laughs> but uh, I'll uh, I'm not sure that that's the case. So, I really appreciate your insight, and thank you very much for for sharing all about you, Maven, and uh, in the private equity industry. Perfect. Thank you for having me. And as always, thank you very much for those joining us. Of course, if you should ever need private equity professionals or portfolio executive hiring in your companies, then please do reach out to me at Raw Selection. But till the next time, keep smashing it. Thank you very much for listening and all the best. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.